So I know what a rent boy is, but what, I mean, obviously, of course, that's just common knowledge, but what's a rent girl? It's a rent boy, but a girl. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's more depressing somehow. Why is that? Patriarchy? Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe um, it's uh, calling attention to the lived reality of most women that our subsistence is, is largely tied to how valued we are by the men in society. So it's it seems really bleak when you phrase it like that because um, makes you reflect, you know? No, it's not that. What it is is that rent is just an inherently super depressing word. No, no, I'm joking. Of course, you're you're 100 right. Yeah, you what's can depressing? Lease <laughs> me, lease me if your credit's good enough. Leasing, leasing is slightly. Why, why is leasing slightly less depressing than rent? I think it's because when most people lease a car, people enjoy talking about leasing their car. Have you ever noticed that if they're leasing the car, people are like, oh, I like your car. They're like, yeah, you know, I just lease it, you know, and then I get, you know, I, I'll lease a different car every few years. I like this Beamer. I'm just leasing like, it. There's something about them that they're just like. You can't pin them down, you know. Mm. They're like there's like a roguish nature to it. Yeah, they're I'm like the Han Solo of, of car car owners. Yeah. Yes, I'm a citizen of the world. I am not a this car driver. I am a um. Who knows? Who knows what I'll lease next? And it yet, if is a sound financial decision, because then you're not uh, spending money on something that's depreciating as soon as you've purchased it. See, you're becoming one of them now. You just, you just, you just like one of them just took possession of you and spoke through your, your voice. That was amazing. Okay. I'm a lease stan. I, I've been a lease stan for a while. I think Entourage poisoned a lot of people in the early aughts against the concept of leasing cars. Interesting. Because when Adrian Gurney's character, I don't know any of their names, loses all of his money and he's like, trying to sell off things he goes well I can sell my car and then Jeremy Piven's character I don't remember any of their names starts yelling at him you lease your cars but it's not an asset so it gave off this impression that like your car is an asset and if you lease you you can't sell it when you need it because you lost all your other money um and I think that really got into uh there's a hegemony of, of car ownership that that just helped kind of feed you know you know, it's interesting you bring up Entourage. I don't know if you're aware, but um, we had Nando Vila on the show a few episodes ago, and he has an Entourage podcast that he does. If you listen to that, it's fantastic. I Let's pot it. it out. Yeah, no, it's great. He pot thinks Entourage. He thinks Entourage is one of the most culturally significant, uh, you know, works of art in like the you know the, the that decade basically in our modern times. I mean, I I don't think what I just said contradicts that. I because I always just thought of it. I never really watched it to be honest when it was on because to me I was just like, oh, this is just Sex in the City for guys, and I'd rather watch Sex and Sex in the City for girls because at least then I'll get to see some nudity and stuff. But also just like it just seemed like such a fantasy. I was like, hmm, you know. But I, I I'd be more interested going back and looking at it now as a cultural product of that time because that was such an interesting time for TV and there was so much bad TV that was bad in a very specific way at that time, mixed in with all this stuff that was like bringing the golden age of television, quote unquote, to fruition. Although like, do you think we're still in the golden age of television? I think television has always been golden. Interesting. I don't know. I think there's, I mean, I, I hesitate to, to make any like sweeping statements about whether now is the great time. I think uh, 
there's more visibility for more people. So we have some things that are, are that we could, you know, like the main, as mainstream culture consumers, we have access to things that we wouldn't have had access to before because of the internet and because of some cultural and societal pressures on uh, larger distributors catering to a more representative audience. Um, and it's, you know, the internet also helps people like independent producers uh, get funding um, to make their stuff. But True. I think there's always been, I was, I was talking, I forget what I was, I don't know, but I was thinking about like patronage and art. Oh, I'm listening to the audiobook of uh, Empire of Pain about the Sackler family. Okay, I don't know that. I don't know that. It name. came out a couple months ago. It's very, very good. I highly recommend it. It's not about the opioid crisis per se. I've listened. I've like read some other books about about you know the actual crisis and and Purdue, but it goes into like how the family made its money in the first place, and it's fascinating. And they, and how deliberate they were. And it reminded me of like the Carnegie family, the Rockefellers, like the, the Morgan family, like it, they were so deliberate in, excuse me, no. honk, honk. they were so, no, the, the driver is, is really, is really excited about this topic. Yeah. They're like hype, hype what no. Hannah just said. Um, so deliberate in cultivating this public image of philanthropists mm. and this, family of um, Eastern European Jewish immigrants and their parents raised them during the Great Depression to uh, strive for a particular like societal, uh, yeah, like social climbing, but born out of a real, it's like the common like immigration narrative, of, like you want your family to have stability. And so they push them to have stability, but also to be socially acceptable. So there's these- These, these are the Purdue's? Was this? Um, the Sacklers. Sacklers, okay, okay. But they, they they're bought, the, the family- bought Purdue, yeah. Okay, okay. And it gets into how, how, how hard they tried to keep their name separate from the Purdue name. And they just, I mean, and they lie, which is no surprise because it's a corporate whatever. But the level of, in like two generations, they went from, you know, we have nothing and I just want my children to have something and also be honorable so that people will not cast you out when things get bad. It's kind of this dual tracks, like economic and social capital. And then the oldest son who was obsessed with accumulating capital in both senses, financial capital and social capital. And they put their name on fucking everything. There's these three brothers and the Sackler name. I mean, like it's, it finally started kind of falling apart, but it's so fascinating to see how deliberate they were in not only getting as much money as possible for the family, but also making the name mean something in, in the art space. And so it's such, if you have any interest at all in that balance between patronage and the arts, which like I'm an artist and I also, you know, was an anthropology person. I won't say anthropologist, but I'm a lapsed anthropologist, but with, it's just, 
if you have any interest at all, it's fascinating to see how, you know, it's like finding out about like, what was the name of the book again? Yeah. It sounds really interesting. Empire of pain. Empire of pain. That's a great title. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I got it from my local library. Mm. Um, that was also um, what I kind of, it was kind of, I self-titled my teenage years. Uh, like I gave them theme titles year on year. And, and in 1998 was Empire of Pain was my theme that year. It was, it was a lonely time. Oh, well, you know, you made it through. Um. <laughs> oh, but what I was going to say was yeah. about, uh, Oh, I forgot what I was gonna say. It was good too. Oh, I derailed. I derailed your uh, your train of thought with my like low low quality, self effacing humor. Classic, classic. Um, what do you think of like f- the pharmaceutical industry in general? Like, I mean, it's it's weird that we have like this like heavily regulated, but like uh, maybe not regulated enough industry. I mean, like as human beings, like should we? Should we be organizing the pharmaceutical industry, which is really like really to legalize drug trade in some ways when you look at like the opioid crisis for one thing, like how much money they've made off that shit. I'll, it's probably unquantifiable. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously super important just for the general like social good. So like people need fucking medication to, for their, I love for, the, for their, for their diabetes or whatever. I've got, you know, Someone, someone, I heard someone uh, recently like talking about like how we balance wanting to this like uh, these competing imperatives that we want to be like hyper local and we want to support sort of cooperative businesses and the idea of of low waste and low carbon consumption and right like these initiatives now of of trying to kind of go hyperlocal, both because it's practically, uh, it's good for the planet and it creates uh, a sustainable community, right? In all these like material ways. Um, But then also ideologically that you wanna move away from giving um, your capital, again, various forms of capital um, to these disconnected corporations that really aren't invested in, in your welfare and they're very happy to suck you dry and throw you out. And as consumers wanting and needing these things that we cannot make ourselves. And um, like I rely on medication that is made by companies. So I have, I will position myself. I have, uh, sorry, this is, can you hear the, the whooping in the background? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a drug party. We got we got a little bit of a. Yeah, exactly. Did you want to edit this out or? I can just no, it's fine. Through. Just okay. power through, power through. It's okay. Um. Yeah. Also, just to position myself, like I have anxiety, um, mm-hmm. and I take Zoloft for my anxiety. I also take Buspirone as as needed for for acute episodes, like when I I broke my foot, and all of a sudden I was like had a panic attack in the middle of Manhattan on the way home from a doctor's appointment because I felt trapped by my physical circumstances. That sounds fun. And it was nice to have a little something to be like, all right, Hannah, you're actually not about to die. Mm. You just feel like it. So bring down your heart rate, get yourself home, and then do all of the things that you've learned to, right? So yeah, I don't, um, of course. 
I think it's part of like um, cereals. It's part of a, a healthy breakfast. Mm. I think it. I, I'm not anti-medication. I, I I I regret the fact that at this moment I really can only get it from these large manufacturers. I would love for it to be different. I would love for some sort of um, for the stakeholders to be diversified. So it's not just shareholders in a company or private shareholders in a private company um, for it to be, you know, I don't want to say nationalized because that's such a loaded word, but I would love for it to be um, not the way it is now. I'm also not an economist and I'm not a political scientist and I'm not um, a business professional. Like I don't exactly know what I want it to look like. I just- Oh yeah, well, no, we actually, we only take people who are economists or business professionals on the podcast, Hannah. So I'm sorry, we just have to end the call right now. I'm, I mean, I know, I understand that it's required that I be able to speak fluently in several- um, in By the way, have you, have you submitted your last, their last five articles for peer review yet? I'm trying to give you an anxiety attack right now, actually. I hope you have. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just think the profit well, motive so when it comes to pharmaceuticals is maybe- I think we've been it's, it's been perverse. demonstrated by by tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of deaths in the opioid crisis. I mean, even here in Vancouver we have we've had an ongoing public health crisis like legally speaking they've declared a crisis like a emergency vis-a-vis -vis opioids and that's been going on for 3 years now. Well, and it didn't, it's, when, it's not as though it stopped during the pandemic. When Purdue started getting investigated in the US, they shifted stuff up north. Mm. So this yeah. it, it really like rum, like rum runners during prohibition or something. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, what, um, I mean, it's, it's an obvious conflict of interest. It isn't mm. like, and all of it is so common sense that it's, it's offensive. Excuse me. You know, like yeah. when someone tries, I don't know how frequently people try to manipulate you, but it happens to me a good amount. And, um, I, you know, I worked in customer service. I'm a woman. I have a highish voice. So I'll, I'll lower my voice. You know, I had my, my, mm. my manager voice when I worked retail mm. instead of going next in line, please. It was next in line. Yeah. The manager is also like, they're the person that leases a car instead of buying two. They're one of those, you know, you know because they're strategic thinkers. But yeah. we digress. So oh, we're going to keep on coming back to the leased car thing. Believe me. If that becomes part of my personal brand, I guess I'm okay with it. Um, I'll I'll reflect on it and, and get back to you about about where I land. Um, Wait, do you think they? Um, oh, manipulation. Do think they? Do you think there's a lot of like leasing of cars in like Gaza? Because I would imagine if you were if you were looking to invest in a car in Gaza, it might be hard to really like in you know go full go full bore and just buy the car. You're probably you're probably worried that that car is going to go up in flames at some point during some kind of bombing or some sort of uh, some kind of hostility. So I bet you the people in Palestine even are like there's there's a version of a Palestinian person who like talks about the economic advantages of leasing a car. You know, <laughs> maybe the worst way for me to bring up the topic of uh, the day. You did it. But I will you say, I believe in a fully democratic uh, Palestine and Israel in whatever form. And uh, I refer to it as yeah. Levant. Levant. It's, oh, that's good. 
it's 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 just because it's a word we already have accessible to us right it's it was it's how i mean it is how europeans referred to that whole region before uh you know it was subdivided um, by various european interests into mm. nation states that we know and and know and know today um but it is as an ancient uh student a student of ancient things mm. um it is an ac technically accurate way to describe uh the land between what does levant what does levant mean that's the Levant is uh, for Near Eastern archaeology, Near Eastern studies, which is mm -hmm. what people. No, talk about. I'm familiar with the term, but it's been I can't remember what it actually yeah. means. For people who study, uh, so modern Middle East is a term, and then ancient Near East. It's pretty much the same region that includes some yeah. parts of northern Africa and uh, Central Asia and places like Turkey. That um, yeah, it would be like Turkey, Syria, Iraq. Yeah, that aren't aren't really considered part of the modern Middle East um, pre kind of Arab conquest. Is that tied um, to the is that tied to the Euphrates and the Tigris and like the floodplain between them kind of? Well, that's Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia. That's Mesopotamia. Yeah. So Mesopotamia is a part of the Near East. So usually Mesopotamia refers to and I'm and I'm speaking you know ten years removed from my actual education, but uh, Mesopotamia is kind of modern day Iraq into parts of Iran. Mm. Um, the Levant is uh, kind of along the Eastern Mediterranean. So you have like Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, um, Israel, Palestine. Um, Which as of yet doesn't exist as a state, but we'll just throw it out there as like a concept in the ether. Yeah, Israel slash Palestine, um, depending yeah. on what you read when. And that therein therein lies so much of the problem. Is yeah, it exhausting? Is, is it exhausting being like the child of of the diasporic Jewish community, quote unquote, unquote when this topic comes up? Because I've I've noticed a lot of a lot of people in that community and a lot of second generation people are like really exhausted and exasperated every time it comes up. Probably, you know, I can I can intuit exactly why that would be, given that I imagine it's it's a conversation that comes up frequently, let's say. I will say all the people who have struggled over the past four, five or six years with family members who are virulently right wing, who weren't before, um, who are pro-Trump, all of those conversations with your family at holidays or things where you, you, you think it's a casual conversation and you accidentally step into quicksand about something that you think is delusional and they think is is a cold hard fact um all of the people who are experiencing that now with with trump trump and uh more right-wing all right qanon adjacent relatives um i think it's pretty similar to a, what a lot of uh jewish americans have been experiencing and I, I hate to refer people to the New York Times, but I believe there was, it, it was in the Times, there was a, a piece a, a couple of years ago about kind of millennial Jewish Americans breaking from their families um, and how they view the state of Israel. And my, that was an interesting part of my kind of cognitive development as a, I call myself an ambivalent Jewess. Mm. Um, I love the word Jewess, beautiful, fantastic it, choice, yeah. Thank you. Because um, it is, you know, it is part of my identity. I consider it, it is an important part of my family's history and it's an important part of, of my experiencing the world. 
but it also, you know, um, the experience of Jews in America has a lot to do with uh, America's relationship to Israel. Um, there's the geopolitical side of it. There's the economic side where you have, you know, the American state subsidizing the Israeli state and all that goes along with it. You also have interest groups in the United States that are invested, uh, ideologically invested in the version of Israel that we have right now. And a lot of it, I think, is fear-based. It's reactionary in the same way that, you know, Trump Republicans or, um, I mean, fucking moderate centrist, anyone who doesn't think that the world is fucked and broken. Um, the... I mean, I have a lot. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this. If if you want to talk, yeah, about it, no, I mean, um, I can share my thoughts. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate that because um, I know it can be tricky. I mean, for me, I, I kind of view it having seen, you know, like my earliest uh, as you know an outsider. I mean, of course, I was raised in a fairly like quote unquote religious family, so there was a, maybe adjacent to that kind of that kind of alliance between right-wing Christians in North America and Israel. Um, and well, certainly uh, I was I was raised to be aligned in that way. What was but, your, like, uh, what were you raised? Were you, you were raised religious in some sort of Christian sect? Yeah, yeah, we'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. Identity, but, yeah. But uh, I remember- I, I, was, I was raised with the Jewish identity. Sure, sure. Um, but, and I remember one of my earliest memories in the conflict, I remember I must've been in something like the sixth grade when Rabin and Arafat shook hands with Clinton, there was that famous photo. And everything was books. And everything went fine after that. And it was, but it was a really, like it was a huge, huge, huge fucking deal. I mean, that was right around the time of the end of the cold war and that that kind of photo up and that that moment of, of potential people thinking there might be some kind of breakthrough was like an end of history type blow people's minds. We're re-releasing Final Fantasy VII on the new PlayStation and everyone's gonna lose their shit. Um, type thing just to give it just to give the kids out there a proper like metaphor for it but you know since then obviously Rabin gets assassinated and, and I was I was a precocious kid I, I I would read two sections of the newspaper growing up I read the world news and I read the entertainment section and the comics um, and you know having if you fo if you followed the conflict since the 90s I, even just as a casual reader I think one thing that becomes apparent is that politics in Israel is is in some ways a prism or a cipher for whatever the right wing politics of America and and that whole American military kind of cultural strategic alliance is like I remember after 9 11 uh I think it was was it Netanyahu back then who was still prime minister he's, uh, I, I he's, feel he's like been he's, there forever I feel like he's been in charge forever I think it was him but I he basically said to, he, I refuse to google it because it's because there's I mean, he's like Putin, like maybe he went away for a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. He's been in charge for. Or it might have been Sharon, but um, basically oh, what happened was there was it was 9-11. It looked the same. Is that, they just, they just committed to say they look the same? Sharon, uh, no, Netanyahu looks a little bit better than Sharon. To be honest, Sharon, think... Sharon wasn't exactly like a looker. I mean, no. when you rot from the inside out, because your soul 
Well, you think, okay, <laughs> we can get into the war crimes of Ariel Sharon in Lebanon as well, but I do want to finish this one point. It's like, it's like the, I think the politics in Israel, because it's all tied in, you know, like you said, economically, strategically, it does, it does reflect the right-wing politics of the world around it in that, in that alliance. And we, when 9-11 happened, you know, they immediately started bombing the fuck out of Palestinian territory saying, this is our war on terror because the U.S. had just started the war on terror. And so Israel immediately, practically immediately within a matter of weeks or months was like, okay, we're, this gives us license for our, our own quote unquote war on terror. And now what we're seeing is the result of Trump having gone in, having done what he did in Jerusalem. And to be honest, I think anyone could have uh, predicted that after that kind of, after moving the embassy to Jerusalem and whatnot, that we were gonna see some kind of violence on the streets, whatever you wanna call it, anyone violence clashes. Anyone could have and also people did. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah, none of it is so not, now, you know, it's not, I don't think it's nihilistic to say none of this is surprising. It wasn't inevitable, but mm. none of this is surprising given the choices that people made and the systems that have been established and perpetuated. Like none of it. The reason I brought up manipulation earlier in terms of like drug companies, it also applies here. Mm. Um, and then I'll let you finish your point when I, after I finish my point. I'm, I'm done. You take your time. Because I'm aggressive. I'm an aggressive woman. Um, is you know, there have been times where people have tried to manipulate me and get one over on me. And I just said, like, you have to wake up a lot earlier in the morning to trick me. I'm insulted by how lazy you're being in your attempt to manipulate me. Show me the respect mm. of being better. Man be best. Manipulate me better. It's insulting. I, that you don't, they, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an insult against your intelligence when they're just like, well... What about this, like pedestrian, you know, sixth grade that's argument? That's what offends me. Yeah, like yeah, great. Totally. You consider me. You can. You consider me prey. You're hunting me. You want to get one over on me. I can respect that. I can respect that for whatever reason you've decided that that uh, convincing me of a reality that is false is important to you. You know, live your truth, chase mm. your dreams. Mm. But if you're going to try to do it, don't come at me with some fucking basic entry level gas gaslighting really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i have google yeah i can find out what reality is mm. i can ask other people i'm a grown-ass woman if you want to manipulate me do better well, I heard I heard once one person say that even if you compare this flare-up to the last time there was a big flare-up which I think it was in 2014 um and we kind of we kind of all imagine that you know 2014 or 2010 was the same world in terms of the digital interconnectedness and social media but I mean really the difference between the world right now and 2014 in terms of like the online presence of people it's like a completely different an order of magnitude of difference and maybe in a way that that ties into what you're talking about as well you know because even though you know things are suppressed and you know on the one hand i read the bbc and i think it's a it's it's an extremely slanted view but even when i get to the bottom of that fucking bbc article it still says okay the casualties on one side were 10 to 15 and on the other side were 250 like that's always you can, because the media cannot not report the numbers of deaths that's one of the things the media do if a if a number of people die and they can quantify it or estimate it, the media will report that number. Of, that's just ingrained like spatial awareness in our brains. So when you just look at the asymmetry of the deaths itself, 
that reality does break through in a way. And I feel I feel the need to also say like, I think we also need to deal with the fact that, you know, a, a big part of the that this has been tied into a big part of the Jewish experience, and and it's important to people's lives. And there's an emotional reality when people say things, you know, like Israel has a right to exist. Don't you remember the Holocaust? Jews have a right to feel safe. Like these, these are things that people are saying from a very real place. I have, even if I, they have been propagandized, I have, even if they are a, being as an ambivalent Jew, I have responses to this. Okay, I want you to take over, please. Um, can you pause the recording real quick? Because I have okay. to get my computer charger. Okay, one sec. Okay, we just we just had to get our uh, talking points from uh, what's a funny name? Who's the big boogeyman? Phoebe. Uh, no, not BB. The uh, <laughs> the left wing guy, the left wing billionaire who was like oh, George up... Soros. Soros, thank you. Yeah, we let's had to get. A, we, left, had, we had to talk to Soros. Say, let's let's not say left wing billionaire. Let's not say a liberal. Yeah, liberal billionaire. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but Soros did text me back, and so I do have my talking points. Did he text uh, you back? I I didn't get a text back. I sent him a message on Instagram and TikTok, but hopefully he gets back to me okay. soon embarrassing yeah um but you had a response to what i just said yeah so i think i'll start by positioning myself because i think it's an important some important context for my perspective on it so you know my my mom is uh not jewish she was raised uh in a like also kind of an interfaith household because she, her mom was a Midwestern wasp and her dad is an Irish Catholic. So um, as far as their families would have been concerned, it would have been an interfaith marriage. Um, so they were just kind of like generically Christian with some Catholic observances, but she wasn't really religious. Um, my dad was raised Jewish uh, on the East Coast and they were observant because um, uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. So wait, your dad's Jewish? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. That makes that that makes okay so much more makes sense now. Thank you. Are you genuinely surprised? I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. Okay, good. I was like, how far back do I have to go? How when 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 the first man and the first woman loved each other very much, they had two sons. Mm. And then that went well, didn't it? Didn't yes. those sons they became best friends? Yeah. Um so I was raised celebrating, you know, Christmas and Easter and stuff with my mom's family and also with the rest of America because I lived in America and uh, really identifying as Jewish. Um, we went to temples as a family occasionally. Excuse me. Um, and I'm getting acid reflux talking about my religious upbringing. You're getting a little verklempt, a little spiel kiss. Yeah. Um, so I was bought mitzvahed. We went for high holy day services. We occasionally went to Shabbat. You watched uh, Curb. I'm sure you watched a lot of Curb too, right? It was like a little too close to, it was like reading, I don't know. It, was, it kind of felt like reading a family member's like memoir. I was just like, this is a little too much. I've, I've, I've turned to it in recent years, but I actually didn't watch it growing up. Mm. It was a little too... I had to get my anxiety under control before I could tolerate the discomfort. Oh yeah. Because it I, was like- I could see that, yeah. My father- 
it's also it an anxiety inducing show especially the early it seasons it's basically like anxiety in in the form of a tv show yeah it's it's it physically and i didn't know how to how to cope with that at the time mm -hmm. i can get that and then having a dad who likes to provoke anxiety as for fun uh not necessarily in me but just in people i was just like uh, this is an entertainment this is my day job this is not <laughs> you know this isn't a hobby this is my day job mm. um but so i identified as jewish and and uh my high school didn't have very many you know there were three thousand kids and and only a few jews and so i you know i i became i identified more strongly as jewish i think in high school because i had people asking me about judaism as like the ambassador of the jews so it was like mm -hmm. do jews believe in jesus it's like well actually no that's their whole thing <laughs> that's your deal jesus is your dude oh that is such a stupid question i love that shit. wow that is just like and it was it was just in terms of stupidity just and i won't say stupid i mean look well ignorance lack of cultural, knowledge yeah it was cultural yeah. ignorance sheltered quivering the fragile uh you know bubble about to be burst at, at any point on any number Honestly, of topics no and it wasn't as a I hate to I hate to burst this uh, this narrative bubble, but it was I mean that wasn't it wasn't like that. I mean my school was majority minority students, and so I was usually I was the one checking all of my you know my my schooling was a lot of me checking my assumptions and learning about like oh I'm I have to learn about other people's cultural experiences and other people's uh life you know things that i didn't identify with until i was confronted with it and it was like oh i gotta complicate my worldview i guess probably so, the primary benefit of education in my view wouldn't you say uh it i i i haven't dared picture the the person i would be if i hadn't done that because i check a lot of boxes for privilege and I could have just been the fucking worst. And some would say I'm still the worst, but I try. You're wonderful. Um, Come on. Don't be so hard on yourself. I try. Um, statistically, I line up with some of the worst. Um, but it was an interesting experience having to explain my cultural heritage to someone who knew so little about it. Um, and who was my friend. And so I was just like, oh, no, you don't dislike. And they used, I mean, I, I had friends who asked me what, you know, what, what kike meant. Uh, feel free to bleep that if it's, if you don't want uh, uh, search terms. Jesus Christ. Uh, let's, yeah. Well, how do you bleep? Do you know how to bleep? You're a producer. That's on you, sweetie. Fuck me. Okay. I'll learn how to bleep. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> we're constantly, we're breaking new territory today. You know, I'm an educator at heart. Um, I think I'll just, instead of bleeping it, I'll just edit in the Darth Vader saying no sound effect, because that's just a classic. You can do like a Mary Poppins, like go fly a kite and, and substitute. Mm, mm. Oh, that's not bad. Kite in. Um, but anyway, like I had, you know, I had a friend of mine who I'd been, this was, I probably known him for like four years, asked me what it meant. And he wasn't, it wasn't malicious. It was a curiosity. Uh, and we were probably 14 or 15. And 
I, no one had ever called me that as an insult. So, mm. and this is um, something that comes up a lot in conversations around Israel and around Jews responsibility uh, to you know, stand in solidarity with other oppressed <laughs> peoples. I mean, like um, in the civil rights movement, for example, huge overrepresentation of Jewish people in that movement, right? Yeah, um, which we can talk about. And but like I, the reason I brought this up is, you know, like I, I hadn't been sidelined because of of my cultural identity. I hadn't been insulted because of it uh, by people who hated Jews. It was an ignorance. And like my dad's generation, I think there was a lot more um, hostility. I mean, they wouldn't, they, like a Rand Corporation probably didn't start hiring Jews until like the 80s or some crazy shit. Like it was a deep, there's deep seated anti-Semitism institutionally that like has only recently been kind of done away with in America for sure. Yeah. And I think um, I wanted to talk about my family experience because I think it it is a helpful kind of avatar for the way that different generations of Jews in America have experienced um, experience identity. I mean, obviously it's our specific situation, but for me, like I haven't, no one refused to hire me because of my Jewishness. No one attacked me physically or came after me with any real hostility because of my, of my Jewishness, except for in the context of Israel when people really were passionate about it. And I, before I learned more about the realities of Israel, I was more pro-Israel. Um, now I would say I'm anti-Israel. Uh, earlier, I would be like, well, I'm not a Zionist, but like, so my views have evolved and I'll get into that in a sec. Um, you know, I didn't experience hostility because of my Jewishness. I just experienced ignorance. And to me, that is something I can give people the benefit of the doubt because I'm not currently experiencing trauma related to that aspect of my identity. My Jewishness is not a piece of me that is, is used as an excuse to, to threaten me. So I don't have a trauma reaction. I'm not in a trauma state. I really think about the, uh, the way that Jews in America, in America, globally, but really in America, mm. um, stand by Israel has to do with intergenerational trauma. For sure. And I mean, you, I, be, you, be, you have to be blind to not see that. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the probably one of the most one of the most visceral intergenerational traumas we've witnessed throughout history. I mean, like how many other people go through something like a genocide or a Holocaust and then give up their spoken language? You know. Like they, 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 like the Jews collectively said, we're gonna, we're gonna stop speaking Yiddish and Yiddish died because it was the quote unquote language of the ghettos. And then they moved to Hebrew. It's like, I, I can't think of another example of something like that on that scale. Of course, like different groups adopt different languages at different times. Um, but yeah, like for sure. Sorry, keep going. Um, well, no, I think it's, I think it, it's re especially relevant because you have, I mean, especially moments like this, we have, people from different generations trying to talk to each other and people of, um, outside of, of, of Jewish America um, trying to understand where people are coming from. And 
I know there are a lot of reasons people support Israel. Um, and I can't, you know, I, I could speculate, but I think I've experienced a lot of different phases of, um, like my views I think have, have matured. Um, and so I'm, I'm more comfortable speaking to, you know, how Jews experience Israel. And I think it's important to understand that some people, like, I can't have a casual conversation about um, misogyny with someone if they don't fundamentally agree that misogyny exists, that misogyny is a problem. Um, and people have had to have, try to have conversations with me and I've, and it's, I'm, I, sh I, I literally left, I've left the table because I'm like, we, this is not a conversation we can have because there is, this is, there is no discussion where we arrived at a shared conclusion. You don't experience reality as I experience it. So I cannot talk to you. If you don't agree that um, misogyny is a real thing. Anyway, so. No, it's a perfect, it's a great metaphor or a great and, analogy. Yeah. And I think, so I think it's important to understand that, you know, I, I, it's a bit important for me to understand. I, I don't need to talk to everyone about everything. And if I have family members who are Zionist, I'm not saying I do. If I have family members who are Zionist, I can under, I, I can, there are reasons for that that are rooted in, in traumatic experiences. Well, and also a lot of propaganda too, right? But I mean, obviously, but you know, when you're experiencing a trauma, you can't get perspective when you when you're when you're safe, that gives you time to settle and to reflect and to take in other people's needs. You know, when I'm feeling super anxious or what, you know, I also have narcolepsy when I'm in in a really acute kind of sleep episode state or if, if my if I'm unbalanced personally, I, I don't have time. I can't think about what, you know, my friend's texting me. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't talk to you about whatever it is that's important to you because I, I'm in crisis. And it's only once I'm out of the crisis that I can really start engaging with what other people need and putting myself second. Um, so when I think when we look at the history of Jews in America and we look at, you know, the, the relationship we have to Israel, I think it's directly related to how far removed we are from those acute traumatic experiences. So me personally, I haven't really experienced hostility as, you know, because of my Jewishness. So I've had this space to reflect and be critical of my assumptions and be critical of what I'm being told. Um, my father's generation of American born Jews, their parents, uh, raise them a certain way they were either living in apartments because they weren't allowed to buy property or they were only allowed to buy property in certain neighborhoods because of restrictive covenants or because of redlining for you know loan officers and banks well, um, and I'm, I'm sure that generation would regularly see people in their in their milieu that had fucking the tattoos on their fucking arms from the camps too it's like that would have been a normal everyday thing yeah right and so the experience you know I haven't experienced de facto or de jure, uh, de jure. Uh, by law. I know, I know. I thought it was de jure. 
Or is that the soup? I love soup du jour. It's my favorite soup. It's delicious. Delicious. Um, but you know, so my, my you know, people of my dad's generation likely experienced kind of de facto segregation. You lived in neighborhoods that were ethnic enclaves. Um, you went to school with people who came from your same community because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't live in, in you, you weren't let into certain spaces. And so the spaces that you did occupy had a higher concentration. It's just, you know, chemistry, yeah. um, physics, whatever. Um, so, you know, that generation came of a, you know, who the boomers, um, I, you know, had a little bit of, uh, they were raised in an environment that was established by this legal segregation and this legal discrimination. So that was real to them. So they experienced a little bit of that, like they, they are untangling their trauma. Mm. Um, it wasn't about survival for them, but it was about thriving and it was about, um, you know, you know, fully realizing what they wanted. And then mm. my grandparents' generation, people who either came to the U.S. because of the Holocaust or who came over um, or who were born here, you know, in the 19-teens, 1920s and either served in World War II or, you know, were around for it, experienced that generational trauma of being a Jew in a time where you weren't quite sure if Jews were going to be exterminated. Because if the Germans yeah. won, well, and the Western powers were returning back boats of Jewish refugees trying yeah. to escape the fucking carnage. Like, um, and anti-Semitism anti and eugenics in America. I mean, we 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 started it here. You know, totally. we have a rich history. And so America number number one again, right? America's yeah. number one. And and so they experienced that kind of threat to their survival. In addition to not being allowed to live in certain neighborhoods, not being allowed into certain professions, not being allowed to do, right? It was, it, the discrimination was acute. But it, so like, why why the fuck would you. would you not want to not do that shit to other people then is, is what I keep coming back to. It's what like, I think, I mean, I agree with you. What I've come to, the way I've come to see it is for people of my grandparents' generation, right? People who were young adults during the war. When someone said, what if there was a Jewish state where there was a, a refuge where Jews were guaranteed safety, right? No, it's, they, the ultimate, it's the ultimate brand proposition. And, you know, there's, there, there's the, the political powers that establish Israel and that subsidize it. But setting that aside, the people who support, who believed in it and continue to believe in it. My grandparents' generation, so my grandparents, their parents immigrated because escaping Eastern European pogroms or maybe they were in between pogroms, but they knew there would be another one. And so they yeah, Eastern Europe definitely were the, the center of uh, the pogrom world for a while there for quite yeah. for a number of centuries. They really pogromed the shit out of shit of things. Yes. Um, so for my grandparents growing up in you know these urban Jewish enclaves, their parents had immigrated to escape extermination. And their bright shining new homeland treated them like shit. They were told you can come here this is a land of opportunity, you'll be accepted. 
and they were not seen they were not treated like white people for a long time so they weren't allowed the same access i mean it was second class citizenship in a lot of ways it wasn't until there were other groups that were othered more effectively that Jews became seen as white in American yeah, society. And that's been a, a decades long process. But you, you gotta so love that like racial hierarchy game of snakes and ladders that seems to be constantly ongoing. You know, yeah. the, one thing we, the one thing we know is uh, generally speaking culturally, because we do live in a society based on white supremacy, like black people are definitely still at the bottom. Ultimately, you know, I would say. Uh, yeah, society definitely. Like it's pretty, it's pretty fucked up how like awesome. categories can change, and Italians and Jews can become white, and then like you know Asian Americans can achieve like a little bit more of a respectable status and whatnot. But like certain groups seem to seem to seem to be maintained at the at the bottom yeah. at the, uh, the permanent underclass tier. So let's put a pin in that because it's I uh, I think that also that definitely ties in I think with with some of. Uh, some of the reasons people cling to uh, Israel today. But mm. the reason I bring all this up is, you know, my, my grandparents' generation, their parents came to escape extermination and they landed in a place that didn't welcome them, didn't want them here really, um, made it known that they didn't want them here, didn't allow them to really do whatever they wanted, right? They were excluded from a lot of opportunity and a lot of of security. They were, they, their physical safety was more or less a given, but not entirely, but it was a less threatening situation. And so they, uh, there's a sigh of relief, right? When you escape, you're like, okay, well, I'm not under attack. No one's trying to kill me right now. So there's a sigh of relief, even though there's all this other complicated stuff going on that's making your life less than it could be. And so my grandparents' generation was raised by those people. And a lot of, of recent immigrants are like, America's great, we love America, it's amazing. It's this beautiful place that allowed us to build our, build our lives and, and have our families. And then, uh, you know, World War II happens, or the lead up to World War II happens. And so my grandparents' generation sees this place that their parents talked so highly about, this, you know, hype America, they see the same country turning away ships of Jews, letting them be killed, not stepping in, not standing uh, up against this extermination plan and continuing all of these kind of discriminatory internal policies and the social dynamics, um, you know, people vilifying Jews for getting America caught up in the war. It's like, well, we don't want to get into the war. You know, why would we go fight for the Jews? Who cares? What a fucking nightmarishly disgusting perspective to have. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's more than enough reasons to get into the war, I would say, even regardless of the fucking humanitarian and moral catastrophe that was like the, I mean, the extermination camps, not only, you know, the, not only Jewish people, but also uh, Roma, homosexuals, like all kinds of people were being put through those fucking ovens. Like, like that's the most anti-Semitic fucking thing I, I could ever imagine someone thinking. But like oppose the war because it's, you know, the military industrial complex is disgusting and uh, we can hold up all of these legitimate reasons for wanting to defend. But like a fascism, humanity. you know, not exactly, not exactly a super, yeah, <laughs> not exactly a super good look. Okay. And just yeah. like blitz rigging into other countries and then, uh, fuck man. Anyways. Oppose the war because Germany is stealing our moves. 
Totally. But don't, but people would oppose the war and resent Jews for getting them embroiled in it. And so my grandparents' generation, you know, they had come up in, raised by parents who, who, you know, I'm speaking generally, but raised by parents who said, this is the land of opportunity. You can make your life into whatever you want it to be. We're finally in a place that's free. There's a bill of rights. Look how great it is. You can be whatever you want to be. And they're trying to do that. And then they see World War II happen and they're like, oh, so they're not gonna defend. If someone comes for me, like I do, they do not have my back here. America is not really a refuge for, for everyone. Yeah. So at the end of, so when the, the, the proposal of, hey, what if there was a Jewish state uh, comes up, it makes, I think it makes, you know, emotional sense for that generation to say, well, yeah, I mean, clearly we are not safe anywhere. So I, I would support having a, a, a place to live somewhere. And then, you know, my, my, you know, the boomer generation, all this is to say, it's my very long story, long way of saying, you no, know, I really appreciate it. You get farther removed from the trauma and you have a little bit more space to, to plan and to reflect at the same time, America is revealing itself to not really be as hospitable as you were told it was supposed to be. And you see all these ways like, oh, well, you know, I actually should have an exit strategy. It's nice to think that there's a place I could go where just by nature of being Jewish, I can claim citizenship. And that is a very appealing concept to people in, you know, growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust. And so I think when we're engaging with people who um, have trouble accepting the, you know, horrific realities of the state of Israel, um, it's that's an important perspective to consider is you know they there are people who who have inherited this this trauma state and if you don't heal you really can't we can't really expect them to genuinely have any capacity to um they have, it makes sense that they have this like visceral reaction, this visceral need, like, well, you gotta have a state for Jews. For yeah. me, I'm like, no, why on earth would I want to set up as, you know- Well, what's next, a, st a state for like, is America for the whites? Is is Canada for whites? Well, only? it is, like, and we, it is. I mean, and it is, and it is, but, but honestly, not to the same extent that Israel is a quote unquote Jewish state, like in terms of, and, and again, it ties into everything, everything you're talking about, this generate, and anti-Semitism goes back centuries, okay? There's like an epigenetic memory, I'm sure, among the Jewish people over all those millennia that yeah, they, that out, they they've been through it enough times, they, they can sense, they can sense that danger around the corner, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I would argue that, uh, you know, uh, to guarantee security and safety for Israeli citizens, you know, one, they really need to start changing some of their policies and they really need to embrace uh, some kind of more full democracy. But, you know, like, all, again, like I, I also keep on coming back to these, these are the crimes of, of Europeans. These are the crimes of North Americans against a people. I don't think a people completely removed from all those crimes need to be the ones paying the price. And I feel as though them paying the price is only furthering the lack of safety, only furthering the lack of security, only intensifying and, and revivifying the trauma. You know what I mean? So that, that was what I wanted to put a pin in. So I think a, a, a 
corollary for the state of Israel, we can look at early United States. I mean, it was established and Rashid Khalidi's book, uh, 100 Years War in Palestine, uh, was really important for me in, in, in learning how to look at what's going on there and how it relates to America and American identity. You know, it is, a, if I say there is a, a settler colonial state that came in and, and embarked on, you know, said, this is our destiny. We need to go here because we're being, the narrative is we, we came because we were being persecuted for our religion. And we wanted to find a place where we could we could live out our destiny, and the indigenous community was was systematically exterminated, and uh, we did everything possible to get rid of them so we could take over what we wanted. And we made agreements and treaties, and we said we were going to stop, and then we changed our mind and and took more, and we lied and we lied and we lied and we killed and we killed and we killed and we, killed and we built our nation and our sense of national identity on a on this false narrative that we were oppressed and needed to do everything we did i mean it's the same it's the same thing and i think the reckoning that america started doing at the close of the civil war we're not done i don't think anyone will ever be done uh undoing white supremacy. I think we've, we've set up a really strong foundation of, of fucking up the world mm. with white supremacy. But I mean, America was explicitly established as a white supremacist patriarchal state. And the work that started with the Emancipation Proclamation with, you know, the reconstruction for, you know, as little as it did, um, you know, changing the, the letter of the law was a really important first step to forcing people to fucking behave and allowing people to survive and allowing people to. So, and I think something in America, like we really aren't good at reckoning with our own crimes. We really aren't good at uh, undoing um, what we were taught undoing the brainwashing um, that generations of Americans um, have been have subjected each other to about what this country is and why it was founded and what it was built on and who we are. Um, you know, people saying this is not who we are whenever anything horrifying happens. It's like objectively who we are. We are we are objectively a nation of violence and of white supremacy and of patriarchy and of hate like we are a nation built on all of those things that seem so abhorrent to this like progressive cultural mindset now um and so relearning our own narrative and re and complicating our own identity is hard work that as americans we are kind of loath to do by and large it, i think it, so it, yeah it's definitely a counter narrative um and so it makes sense that the same types of, I mean, our government also helped put together the, the, the situation in Israel and, and Palestine now. Um, but culturally, it makes a lot of sense that we as, a, as Americans have a really hard time seeing 
Israel for what it is. I think, I think yeah. it's scary. It's scary. And this is something that came up. I was talking to someone about Israel and they kept saying like, well, what's, if everyone has, I was like, okay, what if ever, there was just one state and all of a sudden everyone was equal and uh, like, let's say that happened tomorrow. They were like, well, what, I mean, what would happen? Like there was, there would be, they, they were alluding to violence and I had to kind of drag it out of them. I was like, what you're really worried about is that the Palestinians are gonna ask for retribution. That they're going to hold people accountable for the shit that they did and the benefits that they have reaped from the oppression of the Palestinians who live there. And that's really scary for Americans to think about because we have not made reparations. We have not made reparations to the indigenous people who lived here, their descendants, whose, uh, whose relatives we killed, whose property we, they, we took. Um, whose culture we sought to exterminate. We haven't paid reparations to descendants of this people we enslaved or, you know, all over the entire United States is built on slavery. I mean, the South bore the brunt of, of kind of the economic impact during reconstruction, but I mean, Northern cities were built on slaves and the money that was accumulated in Northern states was because of slave related enterprise as and, classic like british feudalism on steroids yeah, yeah and and westerns i mean the entire the entire history of the united states is is subjugating people whoever we can and trying to you know it's like hyper capitalist machine trying to wring them out for as much as we can so that we and we has really always meant white men in America, but I'll say white people, white people in America can live our destiny. And we have not paid reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans. We have not paid reparations to the descendants of uh, the indigenous people that we uh, killed and, you know, corralled into concentration camps that maybe were as large as Oklahoma, but they were concentration camps. And we have not paid reparations to the descendants of Chinese uh, immigrants who were attacked and who were marginalized and who were discriminated against legally. We have not paid reparations to the Japanese Americans who's, you know, like the Nazis, we took their homes, we put them in concentration camps, we took all of their resources, we took yeah. their money. As we did in Canada as well. Yeah. I mean, you can also think you can also look at black farmers that have been, you know, there's always been huge discrimination from the federal government in terms of subsidies for, for non-black farmers, basically. Um, you have uh, groups like the the experimentation on Puerto Rican Americans. You ever hear about yeah. that shit? Like, like there's well, just I mean, like yeah, there's our, endless examples, right? Our our Pacific colonies, our Central and South American colonies. Um, there, we have not really had a reckoning in America, a, a meaningful reckoning with what we have done and continue to do. Well, I think and, it's because psychically we actually can't. We, we, we don't have the capacity to cope and look it. at it. It's like, it's, I think that's actually one big reason why you hear a huge swath of people just don't follow international news. They're not interested in, in anything to do with politics and history on the outside world. They kind of view that as all one big mysterious object. You know, oh, well, I don't follow international news. I should read it. I know I should read it more, but whatnot. But it's like, I think there's a reason why people don't want to read international news. Because if you read enough about say a place like Latin America, 
eventually, you know, I think, I think, I think intuitively we suppress the, this instinct we have and this knowledge that we have that if we, if we go deep, deep enough down into that, down that avenue, we're going to see that our country and our culture has been responsible and it's probably continuing to be responsible for some horrendous shit. Like I look at uh, like Canada and Latin America, we've got Canadian mining corporations that have been involved in Latin America for decades. And uh, you know, I'm sure it's not exactly all rosy, you know, but I don't have to worry about that if I, I just don't read international news and I, oh, you know, I, I just focus on other stuff. I'm more interested in US politics, for example. Like, it's interesting to me how you could be interested in just US politics. And there's people who are hyper interested in US politics that don't fucking pay attention to the international sphere like at all, which is really bizarre. You know, it's like if you were in ancient Rome, you'd be aware of what was going on in Damascus or Alexandria or, you know, Spain. You it's, know? it's, there are people who I think you, I was talking to someone about uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh and how he just needs to be punched in the face um mm -hmm. non-violently of course punched in the face um rhetorically there are people who i wake up every day did i have i already said this on your show i feel like i don't, I think, said so. I, I don't think so you wake up every day that's impressive work i, 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 don't, up, I, don't, I don't get out of bed like most I days know. of the week i wake up every day and the world is less scary to me than it was yesterday hmm. The world is getting better for, you know, the things that I'm afraid of, the things that threaten me. Every day, they get a little bit, uh, they diminish a little bit, a little bit uh, disempowered. Um, walking around feeling physically threatened or feeling emotionally threatened by people I encounter. Those, or that like the world is, is becoming more and more hospitable to me. Um, that's not the case for talking about Andrew Cuomo. You know, it was like a man like that, every day the world gets a little bit scarier for someone like him. And someone like, I call him Trip MacArthur, John MacArthur, the publisher of Harper's, who is, was embroiled in a very well-deserved, uh, kind of backlash about how he was excoriates cancel culture and it's really he's someone who's never had to deal with real consequences or accountability yeah it's funny how like accountability is now cancel culture as accountability well accountability is scaring people and because... cancel culture ha is is like overheated and overdone fraught but that doesn't mean that like yeah accountability or people just being criticized like people I, are saying people are just calling just criticism cancel culture now cancel culture all it is is divestment all it fucking is is divestment it's i no longer want to amplify this person who before either they're if they're you know like performers comedians writers whatever if if that artist was coming across my news feed and before I would have given them a click. Now I know a little bit more about them and I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm just choosing not to give them my click. That's all it is. People who fear it really fear um, accountability or don't fully understand really like, it's not that powerful of a thing. It's only as powerful as, as you know, if you give credence to what people are saying on the internet about you, then, then it's gonna be really important. 
it's going to be life changing if the internet's opinion of you. Oh man, there are all kinds of people out there who are like so over invested in their social media presence that you know if they if they don't get enough retweets on something, like they're traumatized by it because yeah. they're that fucking addicted. I feel like we can't even media. go down. I mean, oh, this, this is a we, 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 this is this is good because I, I, I do, do wanna, I do like go ahead go ahead. I I do just I want to um I want to make sure I'm hesitant to leave uh any uh kind of hanging hanging chads if you will at the end of of of, of talking about israel palestine because i i feel like it's i don't want to i mean we both we both obviously support an end to violence on all sides we obviously both support the safety <laughs> and security of everyone who has i encourage as, as our as my president obviously. said we i encourage a ceasefire I, I mean, encourage a ceasefire. <laughs> I'm being, making a bold statement. I encourage a ceasefire. Yeah, the tail is wagging the dog a little bit. So, um, but all all of this is to say, you know, uh, the the idea of a world where people are being held accountable for things that they were not held accountable for for before, before is scary to to people, and it makes sense. And, you know, I was talking to someone about, you know, when I was having this conversation about Israel, I was like, you know, people say in America, right? Like white people are lucky that the slaves just wanted freedom. They didn't want revenge. They just wanted equality. They didn't want revenge. And there's this idea that it's if, if the Palestinians are given legal equality let or like alone, a, 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 electricity for more than two hours a day or no, but if the, everyone access becomes, to their own water i mean like or... why why like if why don't they just like make everyone an equal citizen of a state right and there's this fear there's this like apocalyptic fear that it's going to be the purge that sure. all, all of these people who had been so brutalized and oppressed will take revenge on the oppressors which first off So kind well, first of- off, first off, I just have to say, like in all the negotiations, if you've read about the details of any negotiations, one overarching theme over the last several decades is that on the Palestinian side, they have they just don't want to die. They, they've they been bending, just- they've been willing to bend over backwards and give up almost anything just for some modicum of safety and security. Like when you and then, and then it's usually Israel who tears it up and walks away from the table, yeah. says no partner, where Palestine's saying, okay, we'll give you everything you want plus 10% more if you can just give us fucking. 20 minutes a day of peace. Like, yeah. like they, they ask, they ask for like the bare minimum. And what I was, yeah, what I was getting at was, you know, historically, that just isn't what happens. You're gonna have people who go for revenge. You're gonna have people who are bloodthirsty because they're pissed. And psychologically that makes sense and there could you know you could make some philosophical arguments that that would be uh somehow just i don't think that something to you know i don't think i'm not going to push for like retributive violence i think most people just want to be able to live their lives and function without the threat of extermination but there is this fear that if Palestinians are given equal, you know, legal status to uh, Israeli citizens, to Jewish Israelis, that 
they're going to flip around and do to the Jewish Israelis what has been done to them. And historically, that just doesn't happen. Like transitions are not smooth. Like I brought up, you know, like ending apartheid in South Africa. Did it all of a sudden become kill all the white people in South Africa? No. Was there violence? Of course, because you had fucking chaos and you're rebuilding, hmm. you know, uh, legally creating equality is a first step toward a more stable life for all people involved. But, you know, you have, you know, abolishing slavery in the US, white people all of a sudden didn't become, you know, s slaves to freed Africans. That just didn't happen. You have civil wars ending in, you know, I mean, you had the troubles ending in, in Ireland and Northern mm -hmm. Ireland, you had, uh, Spanish Civil War ending. You have, I mean, you have civil wars ending all the fucking time. You have colonial occupation ending all the fucking time. And what people usually end up doing pretty well regardless. And even and if equality is so fucking scary, that doesn't, that hypothetical fear is being, is out, is, is somehow taking higher precedent than actual violence and actual suffering, which is just like intellectually, it's obviously not okay. Um, but I think for Americans, the reason I kind of went off on this whole tangent, you know, I think it is a scary thing for Americans to picture what real equity would look like in a place like Israel, because picturing what real equity would look like in the United States is existentially just, uh, it's a crisis. Picturing in the same conversation, someone said, well, what if, you know, your, your family home, what if someone you know tomorrow was like well this is occupied land so this now belongs to uh you know a black family who lives a couple miles away as reparations for the enslavement of their ancestors or of the native tribes who used to live here like what if tomorrow someone was like that's no longer yours it's theirs now i and i said that would be fair <laughs> it would be fucking fair i mean i i wouldn't like it but tough shit you know like you're all you're doing is redistributing the suffering a little bit mm. you're going from one side having all of the suffering pretty much most of the suffering 99 percent of the suffering to it being a little bit more evenly distributed and if we can't acknowledge that it might be worth a little bit of inconvenience or maybe even a little bit of suffering for other people to escape, you know. <laughs> the the never-ending cycle of, of intergenerational violence and loss. Yeah. and oppression. If it isn't, if I'm not willing to to be inconvenienced or even to suffer a little bit to help to help make that happen, it's it just says something about me mm. and what I am not willing to to sacrifice. And Absolutely. that is an indictment of me and my priorities. And I think that ultimately is why American Jews, but also Americans at large, um, white Americans at large, let's, let's say, let's call it what it is, um, have such a hard time being able to, to see the reality of what Israel does because it is, uh, I mean, I think I'm proof that you can do that and you don't explode and you can survive it. And a lot of people make, you know, do that work and 
evolve their views to be a little bit more um, honest, <laughs> mm. uh, to see the world a little bit more for what it is instead of uh, this like. Well, and just be able to hold multiple thoughts in your head at the same time without kind of just just going between, uh, you know, oscillating between like random uh, thought bits or, or ideology flavors, you know, or rhetorical kind of like talking points. Like that's one thing that bothers me a lot about this discussion too. Is is and you know this this is always a bad sign when you're having when you hear a discussion that just it jumps around. You know, someone will say one thing, and then someone else will say, "Well, what about this?" And then what, what about, about this? bullshit? Do you, I'm do sorry. You think, Look, do you think Hamas really... should be firing rockets? It's just like, well, that's like, not what we're off. talking about. Yeah. No one said that. Yeah. No one said that. And that's, I think it is both. And I've had a conversation, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend about this. And she was like, you know, she was like, oh, I'm afraid about, you know, Jews being about like violence against Jews and like broadly, like Jews not having a homeland. She really sees the need for Jews to have a homeland. I, I don't think that that's a viable, a viable uh, step. I don't think I think that the the costs outweigh the benefits. But the this the idea that some it, it's both complicated and really fucking simple. Like mm. there, like there are a lot of factors at play, and it complicates how I see myself and how I see the world to accept uh, the situation in Israel for what it is. Right? It complicates the simple truths that I thought were true, which is, you know, oh, there should be a Jewish homeland because Jews are under threat. Um, Instead, it's like, oh, these oppressed people are now becoming oppressors. That's a little messier. How do I reconcile that? Who who are the players involved? Um, How is global influence, uh, you know, foreign governmental powers, including the United States, how does that impact the situation? Um, You know, that's, that, that's, it's complicated to see the reality. It complicates some things, but it also is just really fucking simple. And that the fact that it's these like great minds in government, all of these executives in our various governments trying to come up with solutions haven't been able to, they don't want to. Mm. And the solution is really simple. And it's not that we're over, I'm oversimplifying it by saying just, okay, what, just pick, I just pick one, pick a solution, just do it yeah, and try it and just start doing it because all of the things that we worry about, all of the hypotheticals, all of the, you know, all of the, the drawbacks that, you know, the unintended consequences, those are going to happen. People are gonna get hurt, people are gonna die, people are gonna look for revenge, people are gonna suffer. It's already happening though, and it's obviously not okay. And the way it is now, there is no hope for it becoming better. The first thing you have to do is just make a fucking decision. And Palestinians don't have, aren't empowered to make that decision. It's everyone but the Palestinians who are empowered to make that decision. They have no leverage in the UN. They have no leverage. And so the idea that it's complicated, it really isn't. Mm. And the, I mean, the people, the powers that be want Israel to stay the way it is because mm-hmm. they make a lot of money and they have a foothold in the Middle East. It's like North and yeah. South Korea. 
Oh, it's the tip of the spear. I mean, like it's hugely, yeah, North Korea. And I was actually talking on the on another podcast about how I, I kind of viewed North Korea in this region as, as it's like the consequences of World War II kind of still spinning their way out in a way to me. And I think it's time we end we end all that shit and try and, and move beyond it. I want to ask you one last question on this topic, actually, because one thing that I'm finding problematic more and more is, and of course, uh, the religious aspect in terms of the holy sites is is really obviously a flashpoint. And but to me, I, I kind of consider that almost more of an emblem of the underlying reality as opposed to a core component. Like, do you think it's possible that in terms of the media framing of the conflict that um, reporting on it in term in these religious terms of this is the third most holiest site and the seventh most holiest site and this is the first and a half most holiest site and this religion or that religion as if anyone really like knows what that means really or as as though that's some kind of really like clear um quantifiable thing i mean i don't really view this conflict as one based on religion primarily i view it as one based on land and, and resources and just the fundamentals of life and i think if if palestinians were living in a, in a situation where their safety and security and dignity was guaranteed or at least somewhat like somewhat guaranteed that you know you wouldn't be seeing flashes up uh, like uh, clashes or, or mob violence or protests honestly is really what we're is, is all it is at um al-aqsa Mo mosque or wherever that else you know or am i am i completely out to lunch there like are we are we over are we are we further reifying the conflict by framing it in religious terms um I, yes and no. Uh, I think it is a really, it is part of the, the propaganda on the part of. Both, probably both sides, to be honest. I mean, the propagandistic no, value of this element is huge. Obviously Hamas is, is, is ostensibly in many ways a, a Islamic organization, a politicized movement of, of or a, yeah. a piece of uh, political Islam or one element of it, right? The way, the way, look, the way I see it is there are people who believe that they're fighting a crusade, that there is a way of life that they are fighting for, that there is an ideology they're fighting for, that there is, that it, it is ideological, whether it is, you know, um, the idea of a nation state or the idea of a certain type of, of religious practice, there are people who think they're fighting for a way of life. Majority of people involved, I would say, uh, are fighting for life. They, and so the ideology is important for understanding peeling back the layers of the propaganda. I think it's important to understand, okay, so the religious aspect is something that might be used by the people involved to obscure the reality. Look, I mean, you had like Hamas is problematic. Well, I mean, there, there are multiple uh, things at once. And I think, I think, but, I think one, I, one half of the equation is more problematic than the other. I mean, they're obviously like not very effective at like a, as, as like a political party yeah, they were democratically they're not, they're elected, they're but as a resistance they're... movement, they seem they're, they're pretty successful. Although well, of that's... course, like, like, uh, like ambiguous, ambiguously aimed rocket attacks are a, are a problem. And well, that's, I was, know. I was, what I was going to say, I was, I was going to compare, you know, I see Hamas kind of like, um, 
you know, the LA gangs that grew out of, you know, the seventies. Interesting analogy. And I think it's really similar. Um, You have people who aren't supported by the government that support supposedly in charge of them. And you have local people who provide services and therefore amass power. Um, And they do legitimate good in their communities, especially the community, you know, they're underserved by, um, by again, by like the larger yeah. state. Um, and then you have people who wield, just like everywhere else, wield their power um, to get more power, right? And so for them, it's not about serving their community, it's about personal power and prestige. And they have some other vision of, of what it is they're fighting for and they can kind of hijack, pardon the term, uh, the work of the organization to to serve their own ends. Um, and I think, you know, Hamas would like, you know, would win in an election and then it would be like, I mean, there's a reason, um, there's a reason these groups gain power. And part of it is because they're operating in a community that needs someone to take care of them. Um, and it's probably fair to say that, I mean, I think most people who've been following it closely know that the Palestinian Authority at this point is kind of a wizened husk. I mean, I heard one person say it doesn't really exist outside of Mahmoud Abbas's office. Um, and I think people also don't appreciate that fact. You know, Biden said we will deal with the, the Palestinian Authority and not Hamas. But like ultimately, Hamas are the only ones really um, defending in any way, quote unquote, the Palestinian cause, right? Yeah, I think it, we... To expect anyone to any any collection of people to behave in a, in a unified way and have absolutely no unimpeachable you know, to be totally unimpeachable that's fucking ridiculous mm-hmm. and it, it's um, you know Hamas might do terrible things they also clearly did something to gain any sort of of leverage in the community and so I think dismissing. Yeah, dismissing people. I can't remember what the original. Um, oh, the religious. Yeah. So, I I don't know enough about the internal politics of of the different Palestinian uh, uh, political groups or or uh, you know pseudo military uh, groups, but um, my position on it is there are there's a minority of people I think who who are ideologically driven, and the majority of people just want to live their fucking lives. And they will join with, look, like I'll join in with someone who will help me survive uh, if I have to. But as soon as you, as soon as I don't longer have to, great, I'm going to lose them. Um, and so expecting, you know, the the community, you know, the full nation of, of Palestine to somehow uh, to atone for the sins of Hamas, it's like fuck off. And I think looking at the function, yeah, I think looking at the function of, of, of gangs in the United States is a really apt comparison because it's a combination of, of, of social services in underserved communities. And then when you accumulate enough power, you can corrupt your, you know, leverage that power to, to serve your own interests and you no longer serve your community. Um, and I think, you, you know, it's a really common thing. And I think the dynamic, um, Israel isn't that special. 
they're being treated with kid, you know, being treated as super special. And maybe it's like the chosen people narrative, but what's going on there isn't, this isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the mm. first, like, it's, it's just the fact that it's, there's, there's stakes, there's geopolitical stakes that have been there the whole time, I think, that have also kind of undergirded it with this, like you say, yeah, like this special status as a, because really like, there's there's probably no country on earth strategically more important right now as an ally to the United States than Israel, right? I mean, really like- I mean, some people would argue South Korea. I mean, that's again- or, you, could like, say, I you could say up, Saudi Arabia would be up there too. But. Well, no, I brought up like North Korea, you know, a split Korea. I mean, South Korea doesn't want, and I, again, I'm, I'm an amateur, uh, I call myself a private intellectual. I'm not a public intellectual. I'm a private intellectual. So I've read I like about that. it, I like that. but I don't know a lot. Um, you know, from what I've, I've learned about, about the situation um, over in Korea is, you know, there's a reason, just like there's a reason Israel is what it is today. There's a reason Korea is what it is today. People could, if people really want, if global powers really wanted to reunify Korea or to keep it two separate states with like an open border, like, or a, a semi-open border, like other, other countries, that could have happened. But Russia, China, South Korea, uh, Japan, the United States, uh, and probably the UK, somewhere sneaky in the back, um, all have vested interests in things staying the way they are because they each the you know Russia and China see North Korea as kind of a buffer between well I mean China knows that if, 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 region. yeah China knows that if North Korea collapses they're going to have a refugee crisis of like in, insane proportions thing. on their hands that's the other thing South Korea doesn't really want to you know the people in charge of South Korea I mean hyper industrialized hyper capitalist like um they don't want to absorb the refugees. They don't want to absorb the problems of North Korea. And then the capitalist states, so-called first world states, um, have a vested interest in that buffer um, between South Korea, Japan, and trade routes with, you know, it's- Well, America, and also if Korea was America, unified, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, America is able to maintain military in South Korea Again, if you if you remove the need for the military, then America will have to find another excuse to, to put military personnel in yeah. South Korea. Well, on along that in that same vein, if if Korea was unified as like one stable state, it would be one of the most significant military powers, not only on Earth, but in like the history of the Earth. So that would completely, you know, I'm sure the military planners on all sides would want to avoid that kind of upset to the power balance as well, right? Yeah, it's not fixed because because the people who can fix it don't want to fix it. Um, yeah. And so the ideology, the ideological um, aspect of like holy sites in Israel. Mm. Mm. I think um, it's part of the emotional the emotional side, and it's and it's important to know that that's a trope that's going to be used in propaganda. Um, but I think it isn't, it's materially not the, the biggest thing. It's a bargaining chip too. You know, I'm sure someone will use it as leverage. Like, oh, well, we'll make sure everyone has access to Jerusalem. It's like, oh, but then also, no, we won't. 
we change our mind and we lie. Um, so it's just, it's, uh, I think it's kind of a disingenuous, uh, as an argument, I don't think it's used really sincerely, but I do think it's important to understand it as a rhetorical device. Um, because totally. also the idea that Jews and Muslims are somehow enemies. Well, how do these people like, I mean, for fuck's sakes, like, I mean, this is pre-Islam, but like, like in the history of Judaism, like who gave Jerusalem back to them, to, to them originally, like back in biblical times, it was the fucking Persians, you know, like there's, there's a, there's a long history. And I mean, there's no reason why that that's one of the things that I have a big problem with, I guess, is, is this idea and this a narrative that you're fed in the West that, oh, this is, is an ancient conflict. It's a blood feud that will never end. It's always been this way. They've been killing each other there for thousands of years. And it's Blame like, no Catholic. motherfucker, there's, there's cosmopolitan multicultural societies all over that part of the world. Like, give me a fucking break, okay? Well, as Professor Adnan Hussein so wonderfully explained in office hours yesterday, um, you know, you look at the history of like the Crusades and the relationship of Jews and Muslims, like the the fates of Jews and Muslims in uh, Europe, Africa, and Asia kind of been entangled. And really they've both been antagonized by the Catholic church and the society constructed around the Catholic church. So I actually, my new conspiracy theory officially as of this moment is this is all just the uh, Christianity triangulating its victims and trying to get them fighting against each other so they don't remember that really the oppressor for uh, over a thousand years has been uh, Catholic military. Course. Interesting. Interesting. We've never ended the show on a conspiracy theory before, but I like it. Like usually we try and have a hopeful thought in the middle and then a more depressing thought at the end. It's hopeful. It's a message of unity for fuck's sake. That's that's true. So we reversed it though, because most of this episode has been extremely depressing while very stimulating. I'm definitely going to call it private intellectuals because I think that's a beautiful phrase. I'm going to release it early for patrons. So let me quickly do some shout outs here. My two Daves, thank you for both being patrons. TG, you know who you are, you know we love you. Sir Nicholas and Sir Alex, our two favorite czars. Thank you so much for being patrons. Um, we will release this though for the general public as well. So if, uh, if any of y'all out there want to join the real party, please visit us at patreon.com slash night rule or on Twitter at pod rule. Hannah, I think, um, I think we're getting more and more comfortable with these long, uh, long form conversations. I think I'll give I you, mean, I'll send you, I'll send you audio. So you have the chance to review yeah. before it goes out to everyone, everyone. I do want to say, you know, yeah. we should, we should, we should tell everyone the date we recorded this. Cause what I'm worried about oh, is yeah. that between the date of recording and the date that it's released, someone is going to fix Israel and oh, all of true. a sudden we'll be super dated. That's true. Yeah, no, it's, um, May 22nd, 2021, year of our Lord. So Anna as Dominique. of it's recording, Israel is an apartheid state and America is fine with that. Mm. And it's, uh, but you know, we might check back in seven to 10 days and, and, and miraculously something will have happened. There'll be an international peacekeeping force guaranteeing the security and safety of all citizens and a multicultural true liberal democracy where people have equal rights under the law yeah. will have just sprung the fuck up. 
in America and in, in Israel. To be honest, um, it, we're joking as though it's impossible, but it actually fucking is possible. It could yeah. happen, maybe not in seven to 10 days. Can I record Can I record a quick disclaimer to play at the top of the episode in case it happens? Sure. <clears throat> a note to our listeners. This podcast was recorded on Saturday, May 22nd, 2021, before we fixed... Israel. Thank you so much. That's an important disclaimer. I actually should also read a quick um, a quick note from our sponsor. Um, today's episode is uh, sponsored in part by White Collar Crime. Are you tired of trying to get those stubborn bloodstains out of your sleeves and cufflinks? Would you rather die than attempt another dirty smash and grab? White Collar Crime is here for you. Um, I'm gonna edit that out though, because that that went over like a lead balloon. I'm gonna write that one out a little bit more. Um, I I see a lot of potential there. There's potential there, right? Um, I do love. Um, this was a great episode on the subject of joke writing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That was I, I totally like. I totally this is a very like, special you. episode. It's like, come on, we'll talk about joke writing, and then like right off as soon as the Zoom call started, I said, you know what? I I, I have we have to talk about Palestine. I just can't can't not do it. Um, just because. Yeah, honestly, and part of it was my my last guest, uh, David Austin, who was fantastic. That was just a great episode. Everyone should check that out. You know, at the very end, we hadn't talked about it yet on that episode. And he said, I, I just need to bring up Palestine because, you know, silence is complicity. And, you know, I think of that famous old Soviet dissident saying that when the truth is replaced with silence, the silence is a lie. And I think, you know, it's important to have difficult conversations because... You know, it's not going to make it better to just not talk about it at all. That's for sure. I I don't know if I heard anyone talk about. I I I probably heard the word Palestine before college, but I really don't think. I may not have. I may not have heard the fucking word Palestine hmm. until I got to college. Like Weird. Israel and the Palestinian, like, right. It really the silence. I mean, it's we are we're being deprogrammed, mm. and I think the comfort level people have. If I said Israel Palestine or I said Palestine as like a as a nation a few years ago, people did they responded the same way as like when I put my pronouns in my email signature, where mm. it's like, oh, what a statement. I'm like, huh. Mm. I mean, kind of, but also shouldn't be. Yeah, shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, Silence is golden. You know, if you stay silent, then the powers that be will continue to extract wealth and maintain the status quo. That's good. That is that's a tweet. That is a tweet. Oh, yeah, I should definitely tweet that out. Um, Listen, it's been so great talking to you for Night Rule. I really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate you kind of being willing to delve in kind of impromptu into a really difficult uh, and tricky discussion where you, one wants to speak precisely and speak respectfully on a topic that uh, people, to say the very least, are impassioned, very impassioned about. Um, anything else you wanna leave the listeners with before, uh, before we call it? Um, 
I uh, can't recommend the book enough. Hundred Years uh, War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. And Empire of Pain sounded great too. Empire of Pain is fucking fantastic. Um, it's a, as I would say specifically, is an exploration of the relationship between the uh, relentless accumulation of wealth and the money laundering uh, that. Uh, cultural community you know the academy in america um allows these people to do is just really it's it's a lot it's intense like i'm listening to it and i'm just like wow like that's they're cartoonish um and the audiobook's available um i got it from my library so uh yeah i recommend those two books um i also recommend everyone go to uh nh tsa.gov NHTSA, the national highway uh, transportation national highway traffic safety administration uh to look up their car and see if it will kill them mm-hmm. independently of human intervention um any recalls or service bulletins on your car you can look it up by the vin or you can look up the make and model in the year and uh they have to you know, take it to a dealer they ha- or have a dealer pick it up from your home. Uh, they do that for free. They have to repair it for free. If they can't get you in uh, more or less immediately or they don't have the part in, um, they should give you a loaner car to use in the meantime. So uh, insist on it. Call your rep <laughs> uh, about your car or just in general about things that matter to you. Um, and what else? Do you have anything coming up? Maybe work on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Is there anything people should be tuning in for in the next bit for for that? Speaking of killer cars and the heroes saving us from killer cars, the man man responsible for the lack of several uh, impaled, chest impalements due to the invention of the collapsible steering column. Thank you very much. I, the first thing I did when uh, I got in a car accident uh, two and a half years ago, as soon as I made it safely through the intersection, I turned off my car and I said, thank you, Ralph Nader. Yeah. First yeah. genuine first utterance. Well, I mean, says, come on. Well, thanks for, thank I wrote him a thank you card. And then I was like, this is morbid. I'm not going to send it. But it was, it, cause it was just, thanks for, um, I appreciate not dying. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I think people actually of my of even my generation don't fully appreciate like the the early history of like those fights for like seatbelts and camping out on on government steps and whatnot. So yeah, what um, are you guys? What's coming up on the show though? Um, so we did have Rashid Khalidi on last week, which was good. Or I guess this is the twenty second. So the episode that dropped on the fifteenth had Rashid Khalidi and John Koskinen, who is a former uh, commissioner of the IRS, talking about. Uh, uh, sending more money to the IRS, which was very interesting. Um, fun fact, the IRS brings money into the, yeah. the <laughs> yeah, government. If you, fund, if you fund the IRS, you'll get, you'll get a huge return on that investment. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and uh, so it was a really, it was a really, uh, it's about Israel and the IRS. Actually, it was a real good time. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would highly recommend that one. 
Uh, this past week's episode, also very good. Uh, Pete Davis, who uh, wrote a book dedicated, which for those of you, us involved in any sort of kind of long haul work, trying to affect change, um, it is just a really interesting, um, talks about the subject of just like how valuable it is to commit to a cause and work on it. And it's not glamorous. Um, but it's important and necessary. And that was really, um, it was a good read. I, I enjoyed that one. Um, Winona LaDuke is gonna be on in a couple weeks. She's uh, a hemp activist and she was Ralph's running mate for two of his presidential campaigns. Uh, she also was a big organizer for the Standing Rock protests and they were trying to put in the pipeline up there. She lives up on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. Um, and so she's a big uh, activist up there, um, talking about hemp, like industrial hemp farming, which was really interesting, mm. um, trying to get us to stop using hydrocarbons and start using hemp for a lot of things. Declaration of Independence written on hemp paper. Yeah, I mean, that's there. a whole other, yeah, the, yeah. the criminalization of uh, of cannabis um, has a lot of so many kind of lingering effects, and one of them is um, this viable this viable alternative to petrochemicals um, products. Like all of our plastics and stuff could just easily be replaced by by something made with hemp. Um, which is it's one piece of it, but it was, that was really interesting. Um, and if anyone ha wants to uh, wants me to help them look into the safety issues with their car, you can email me at totalrecallpod at gmail.com. And for the low, low price of me recording our conversation for my uh, upcoming podcast, Total Recall, um, I will... Uh, help you make sure that your car is not actively going to kill you. Are you going to be releasing that podcast every two weeks? It's a total uh, recall, total recall reference. The the a fantastic scene by one of the greatest actors of our of any generation, Margot Martindale. Fantastic, fantastic work. Two weeks. Um, okay, well that's that's fantastic stuff, Hannah. Thank you so much again for coming on. Um, I'll shoot you a message with uh, the audio. I'll probably push this out for patrons today, and then we'll release it for the public at large, probably manana. Um, but uh, yeah, we just we just blew through two hours like it was nobody's, like it was NBD, you know? You like know. A BFG or BFD, big fucking deal. Like, pff, we got this shit. HBIC. HBIC, what's HBIC? Head bitch in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah Feldman, private intellectual here for a very public conversation. Much appreciated. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and, uh, and we'll have to do it again in a few weeks, okay? Thank you, Isaac. Uh, stay Canadian. She gave me all I tried, all the love in my life Took me in, hook, line, and sinker Didn't see my fate, and I woke up much too late I've left, you're right, she's gone